Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So um, today it's going to be a little bit redundant at first. My wife's like, God, that's just redundant. And I said, well, I'll just tell them and then they won't be disappointed. It's going to be redundant. (laughs) Um, Because what I want to do is we have literally looked at every verse. And I feel like we looked at every word almost. But we looked at every verse through Jude, 25 verses. And what I want to do is I want to read, as we've been doing, we've been progressing and we've been reading from the beginning to where we were going to cover for that day. Today we're going to cover verses 22 through 25. And so we're going to read the entire book of Jude at the beginning. And then here's the redundant part. I'm going to give you a quick review of the previous eight messages that we have done to bring everybody up to speed and then we'll continue to finish our series um, in verses 22 through 25 so that's the goal this morning and I love it when Justin reminds us that this is God's word after he reads I think every time he says that and that always joys my heart because this is God's words it's infallible inerrant and it's our authority We're fallible, we're errant, and we are not the authority, but his word is. So um, let's start at verse 1. Jude, a bondslave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master, the, and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, 
and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust, and they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And then starting at verse 22 through 25, which we will cover today, it says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Yes, amen. Well, we started our series with an introduction to the book of Jude. We learned that Jude was the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus. We saw that the letter was written between 60 and 70 AD. We learned that certain people had crept into the church and influenced others to presume upon God's grace. This prompted Jude to write this letter. It's not the letter that he intended to write, but it was the letter that needed to be expediently given to this body of Christ. In our second message, we covered verses 1 and 2. We saw that Jude referred to himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ rather than the half-brother of Jesus. Jude reminded the true believers of their position and blessing in Christ, they were the called, the beloved, and the kept, and for this reason, they received mercy, peace, and love. In our third message, we covered verses 3 and 4. We looked at what it means to contend for the faith, that we, the true body of Christ, are to contend for the objective faith of the scriptures. We looked at the marks of the apostates given in verse 4, lives marked with licentiousness and a denial of Christ's lordship. In our fourth message, we covered verses 5 through 7. We saw three illustrations of God's judgment. We saw how he dealt with unbelieving Israel, the rebellious angels, and the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our fifth message covered verses 8 through 10. 
We saw that false professors defiled the flesh, rejected authority, and slandered angels. These apostates were fulfilling their own sinful desires. They lived lives polluted by sin. They not only rejected human authority, but also the Lordship of Christ. They had no fear of God and were arrogant enough to slander the things of God, including angelic beings. Our sixth message, we covered verses 11 through 13. We continued to look at what apostates were like. They were stubborn and prideful like Cain. They were in the church for their own gain like Balaam. And they rejected human authority and God's authority like Korah. We looked at five natural phenomena. These are natural men, so the natural phenomena are fitting for them. They are like hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless autumn trees, wild waves of the sea, and wandering stars. Our seventh message covered verses 14 through 16. We took an in-depth look at Enoch and the prophecy that Jude applied to these apostates. We saw that their judgment was set in stone and it was for sure, and it would happen just as God brought judgment upon the world by the flood. That we then continued to see that this judgment was just and right because these apostates were godless people that only produced evil through, evil through their words and actions. Our eighth message last week covered verses 17 through 21. We saw that Jude reminds them that they were forewarned that these apostates would infiltrate the church. They were a threat to the faith not only by attacking scripture, but also by their lifestyle, which was a bad example for others. Then Jude went on to give us some practical application for us that are true believers. He said they could, because they could not just attack the false teachers and their teaching, but they also needed to watch over their own walk with the Lord. He reminded them that they needed to be to build themselves up in growing in the word of God, to be praying fervently in the spirit, and to remember Christ will return and complete their salvation. So now let me transition. Um, James Davis, I don't know if he's in here this morning or not, but James Davis last week talked to me at the fellowship meal and he brought up something that I need to clarify. And this is just as good of a place to do that as any. Um, there's a major difference between a pastor that is still growing and learning who is possibly in error on a doctrinal issue and a false teacher that willfully teaches heresy. And James brought up a good example of my friend, John MacArthur, who during a period of time did not hold to an eternal sonship view of Christ. And he was wrong in that. And it was an error. And men came alongside of him and helped him to see that more clearly through scripture. And to John's credit, he recanted of his errant view of that and came to the biblical view of that doctrine. I wouldn't put John MacArthur as a false teacher. I would say that we're all growing. And I know personally I have been with John when he has told folks that if he knew where his theology was wrong, he would change it. I hope that we all have that same attitude. And as we learn more and more from scripture, we should have that attitude. 
There's a humility that needs to be there for us as we continue to grow and understand doctrine and theology more and more. We read in Acts 18 about a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, whom God used to help Apollos understand scripture more clearly. Aquila and Priscilla were taught by Paul and in turn were used to help others to understand scripture better. In Acts 18, 24 through 28, we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside to explain the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Here is a great example of how we should be helping each other learn and grow, and also how to be humble enough to be taught. So it goes both ways. Jude has been dealing with apostates that are not teachable, but rather continued in their heretical teaching and way of life, I hope that brings a little clarity to who we're talking about as far as false teachers. And it is absolutely proper for you to go to different teachers or our elders or pastors, clarify things with them. If you think that there's something that they don't quite see clearly, and maybe God has given you more understanding of that passage or that doctrine, you should never be afraid to go to them in humility and help them grow as they do us. They come to us and do the same exact thing. But now we turn to more instructions from Jude to his readers, and those are for us today as well. Growth in Christ comes through the study of his word, and we learn more and more who he is and what he demands of us as, he, as his called, beloved, and kept ones. So now let's start in verse 22 and 23, which says, And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. How are we to respond to others based on the mercies God has given us? Our response to his mercies towards us should result in us displaying mercy towards others. This should be the character of our life as we demonstrate his mercy and grace to others as he has given to us. Now verses 22 and 23 are a little hard to translate since there are two different renderings in the early manuscripts. Some have translated these groups into two groups of people and some have translated them into three groups of people. In my studies, I would um, say that the correct understanding is, of this is that we're dealing with three different groups of people here. So that's the way I'm going to teach it. 
And if you see it differently, that's fine. You have freedom to do that. And in fact, I think there's even a view that there's four different groups of people in this passage, which that one was a little hard hard for me to see that. But there, there, can, be, um, there can be wavering in that and understanding of that. But we're going to look at it as three groups of people. It's important that we evaluate where people are at spiritually so that we can know how to deal with them. Some of us have a wrong view of judging. We are supposed to judge. We need to look and see where people are at. We need to judge by God's word. So it is very, um, it is very important for us to know what kind of people we're dealing with. We have three groups of people here. Those that are weak in their faith, those that are succumbing to false teaching, and those that are clearly false teachers or they have bought into all of the false teaching 100%. So let's start at verse 22, which says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Our first group is the weak ones. This first group Jude mentions is the least affected by these apostates. They are those that are doubting and wavering in their faith due to the influence of false teachers. We have a responsibility to come alongside of these people that are weak and doubting. Many struggle with assurance of their salvation, but there are many who are weak in the word and get thrown by every wind of doctrine. They are, as one John puts it, little children. All they know is they love Jesus, but they can't defend any of the faith. They are not strong in the faith. So what should our response be to the weak and doubting? We are to extend mercy to them. We are to be kind, gentle, patient, and compassionate towards them. But that does not mean we do not come alongside of them and help them to grow. The goal is to build them up in the faith and help them be discerning so that they can contend for the faith. We should not give up on this group of people even when there has to be the hard discussions of truth. It is always, this might sound weird, but it is always a pleasure to debate and dialogue with those that bring questions and are weak in the word because through those times, growth in Christ happens. And it isn't always one-sided. It's both people that grow in the Lord. I know that I need to grow in being more gentle with people when I'm trying to help them learn and grow. So as I'm doing that, it gives me the opportunity to try to be more gracious and merciful. And, I, and the end goal is always to see people grow in Christ. The writer of Hebrews gives us instruction here to those that are strong to help the weak. We read in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13 the following. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that you, the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The author of Hebrews not only instructs us that we are to strengthen the weak believers but also gives us instructions throughout the epistle to watch our ways too. God has given us our pastors, our elders, and each other to be used in each other's lives to help each other grow. 
The Apostle Paul lays out the, found, the function of our elders and each of us in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where he says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the serv- work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now listen to this. In verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's our command. We're to be used in each other's life to help each other grow to be built up in our faith. So the goal with this first group is to see them gain their foot, solid footing on the word of God, becoming a discerning person, and to see them used in the body of Christ to help others to grow. And let me just say, if you, it doesn't matter where you're at on your faith journey with the Lord. Some of you are very mature. Some of you could probably teach in seminary, and some of you All you know is that you love Jesus. Well, share with people that you love Jesus. But grow in his grace. Find a person that maybe is a little bit um, more immature than you and help them to grow and vice versa. That's what we need to be doing with each other. Now, our second group is mentioned beginning in verse 23, which says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. This group I've titled as the almost caught ones there are those there are ones that are these are ones that are close to being taken by the apostates they may have started to believe the apostates teaching which was probably evident in their behavior this type of person becomes lax about their sin and doesn't take it as seriously as they should many times it is hard to identify where they really are at with the lord There may be spiritual life with this group, but it usually is not very evident. Regardless, the greatest thing we can do is present the unadulterated gospel to them. The way they respond will tell you where they are at. This group of people are influenced by those in the church that presume upon God's grace and also those outside of the body of Christ. We are all prone to be influenced by our culture. It is very easy to see what is going on around us and start questioning, did God really say? Sounds like Eve and the serpent, right? Did God really say something about sexual um, sexuality? Yes, he did. He said something very clear. We need to be grounded in God's word and not in culture to understand those things. And it's all kinds of areas that we have succumbed to in thinking like the world rather than thinking like Christ. 
And all of us can be put in that section. I don't think anybody in this room has a clear, always correct understanding and your culture hasn't hasn't influenced you. That's why in Romans 12 it tells us to renew our mind by God's word so that we can become more like Christ. These people possibly went headlong into this um, into this false teaching and it was evident in the way they began to live their lives. See, the apostates were encouraging others to live like they do in a licentious lifestyle. They were presuming upon God's grace rather than living under his lordship. These people are more difficult to reach than the ones that have doubts but have not bought into the lies of the apostates. The apostates, because they were not dealt with properly in church discipline, were creating confusion among the true believers. Confusion happens when a church does not practice church discipline. When sin is allowed to continue among those that profess to be Christians, it permeates the entire church and can sway the weak to not take their sin seriously. I'm thankful that we're at a church that we do practice church discipline. The goal of church discipline, as we touched on last week, is to see that see that the, that to see those that are in sin, unruly and not living according to God's commands, repent and restored in full standing back into the body of Christ. There is great mercy and grace involved in church discipline. And we can never lose sight of the goal of church discipline, which is not to ostracize, but to restore after repentance. Notice it says in our passage that we're looking at about these people is that it says we are to snatch them out of the fire. These are people that are in real danger. The word snatch means to seize something or take something by force. These people are playing with fire. The fire here that it's talking about is representing hell. They are very close to being eternally lost if they continue to embrace the false teaching from the apostates. These people were getting singed by the fire, which is a picture of how close they were to the final judgment. But God, in, mer in his mercy, is saving some out of that fire. We saw a picture of this in one of our earlier messages, but it's such a beautiful picture, I want to go back to it again. In Zechariah 3, 1 through 4, this passage just blows me the away, by the way. I want to do a whole s three sermons on this passage. But it is a beautiful passage, and it's a beautiful passage of what God does to us. It says in Zechariah 3, 1 through 4, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ there, just to make sure you understand that. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He, sp he spoke to those, Jesus spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garment from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniqui iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. That's what Christ does in saving us. 
A brand plucked from the fire. This is a description of all who God saves. We were all dangling above hell, and in his mercy and grace, he saved us. And as I've said before, God uses us in ministry of reconciliation, and we must take that command seriously. We read in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, the following, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And also in James 5, 19 and 20, it says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is always the goal of church discipline. When church discipline is used in a biblical way, it is seasoned with much mercy for the one disciplined. It is a warning and signing, a warning and siren to the one being disciplined, but it is also a warning to all of the body of Christ to guard their lives against unrepentant sin and a hard heart. To be clear, we cannot save anyone, but God does use us as instruments to snatch others from the fire. That is what Jude is implying here. John Calvin puts it this way, the word to save is transferred to men, not that they are the authors, but they are the ministers of salvation. This follows with what we are commanded in 2 Corinthians 5.20, which says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So our goal with the first two groups we have seen so far is to be used by God to bring these folks to a solid standing in Christ. The first group being in less danger than the second group that has begun to embrace the false teaching of the apostates. Now at the end of verse 23, we come to our third group here and we read, And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Our third group are the defiled ones. With this group, we need to be on guard as they can affect us, and we need to proceed with great care, lest we fall into their false teaching. We have to know the word and use great discernment in dealing with people that are like this. These people are polluted, and the word garment here is their actual undergarments. Their sin is so deep that they are polluted to the core. They continue to pursue, persist in their sin even after great warnings. We need to take great care when dealing with false teachers so that we do not become stained by their pollution. Jude gives us a picture here of the undergarments that are soiled by, by bodily discharges. William Hendrickson, commenting on this passage, says, Jude wants the readers to feel intense aversion, even the point of hatred, especially when they think about clothes that belong to someone else. Jude is saying to his readers, 
Avoid all contact with sin so that it does not contaminate you. In fact, hate sin as you would loathe filthy undergarments stained by human excretions. Titus 1, 15 and 16 reminds us how apostates are, and it says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We need to be careful that our love and mercy towards even these people is not misconstrued as accepting their sin. We must keep our lives pure and undefiled by them. We never know how God will use us even with an apostate, but we must guard our lives closely to not be stained by their sin. Sometimes the only thing we can do for this group of people is pray for their salvation. I have run into many false teachers and they are hardened in their hearts and not receptive to God's word at all. In these cases, I would suggest that the way we show them mercy and protect our lives is to pray for their salvation. So we have three groups of people, the weak ones, the almost caught ones, and the defiled ones. We must use discernment and great care as we deal with each of these groups. Now we get to the end of our letter here in verses 24 and 25 with this beautiful doxology. I'm sure it's familiar with us because we hear it often from the pulpit. And there's no really better way to end our series than on these last two verses. Let me explain the difference between a doxology and a benediction. A benediction is from God to us, and a doxology is our praise to him. So it's his blessings to us, and a doxology is our praise to him. And here's an example of a benediction in Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. It says, Peace to the brethren, be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So Jude began his letter in verses 1 and 2 reminding us who we are in Christ and why we can have confidence in being in his care. Now here in the last two verses, we see what our response should be because of this salvation he has bestowed upon us. This doxology should be the heart of our worship to the Lord. It should be our constant position before our Lord as we give him the praise and glory he alone deserves. Let's start at verse 24, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Jude begins his doxology with pointing our eyes towards God. Jude has been warning us of these apostates throughout the letter, but now he brings a theocentric understanding at the end of his letter. Here is where we find our confidence our stability, and our comfort. We read in verse 21 and saw last week that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. And now here in verse 24, he reminds us that it is God who is able to keep us. This is the promise God has given us to preserve those 
whom he has chosen and set his love upon and to keep them until the end. The words is able are not meant as there's a possibility. That's not what it means. It's, it doesn't mean it's a possibility he might do it. Rather, it points to his attributes that would include his sovereignty, power, authority, and unchangeableness. There is absolutely no doubt that he will accomplish what he has set out to do. And he has all the attributes that point to that surety. That is what this is saying. It is sure. It is for sure he's going to do this. And then we have the word stumbling. The word stumbling here is not indicating that we will not struggle with sin, but rather that we will not experience judgment in hell. Some teach that sinless perfection is attainable here on earth, but that simply is not what Scripture teaches. And anybody that's honest with themselves know that that is not going to happen. That's why we look forward to our glorification with our Lord, right? Notice how it connects keep you from stumbling with to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless. He keeps us from falling away all the while making us blameless before him. The Apostle Paul in, says in 2 Timothy 1.12 the following, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, that day of glorification. Those whom God has chosen to save will be preserved till the end. The Bible teaches eternal security of the believer. We are in his hands and he will complete that which he has begun in us. But you may say to me, why do people abandon the faith? This, there's a lot of confusion on this. It is because they were never truly saved. Our churches are filled with people like this. 1 John 2, 18 and 19 says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour, Listen, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It is clear from this passage that if someone is a true Christian, they will not abandon the faith. It is very sad to see people use the word backslidden for those that have abandoned the faith without ever confronting these, quote, backsliders with the gospel. I have seen too many parents do this with their adult children. And this is, this is a sensitive subject to me because I have unsaved children that I pray for daily. There is no fruit in their adult child's life, and instead of confronting them with the gospel, they point to their child's past profession for their assurance. What a terrible thing to do to your adult child. They need to hear the gospel, which is more important than you having a false assurance that they're saved. But for those 
who are in Christ, we can have confidence not in ourselves but in God. We all need to be reminded often that salvation from start to finish is his work. He will keep us from stumbling and falling away forever. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can we stand before God blameless? We cannot do that on our own effort and power. Double imputation is what Christ did for us. So what does that mean? Christ came as a baby for a very specific reason. If all it took was for him to come, he could have took a long weekend and did it. Just come on on Thursday, die on Friday, rise on Sunday, it's done. He had to come as a baby. And we miss this so many times. He came to live a perfect life keeping the whole law of God perfectly without sin. Did he have to do that? No, he was the lawgiver. The requirements of the law are fulfilled in him. He was perfect and did not deserve death, but he willingly went to the cross as our substitute. He took away the guilt and punishment of our sin. His perfect life, lived life is imputed to us as if we had lived that perfect life and our sins are imputed upon him as our representative. That's double imputation. This should make us the most joyful people in the world, knowing that we are in the hands of our Lord and no one can change our standing before him. That which you cannot do in your own strength, he does. The Holy Spirit lives in us and will work in us to complete our salvation. Paul gives great encouragement to us in Philippians 1 6, which says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And also in Paul in Romans 8 31 through 39 tells us this What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, listen, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. With great joy we can give God praise for his salvation, his sanctification, and his glorification of us. He has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us, bringing us into glory with him to the end. And then finally, we are at the last verse, which says, to the only God, our Savior, through 
who through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. He is, the only, he is our only God and Savior who can keep us till the end. There is only one God who created all things, is in control of all things, and only he can bring us into a right relationship with him. Our salvation is from God the Father, through Christ the Son, and executed by the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Bible teaches the Trinity of the Godhead, and though we don't have time to develop that here, we can look at this and understand that all praise is to our triune God for our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification. Jude lists four attributes of God in our passage here. His glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. These attributes were chosen carefully by Jude as a good shepherd to his flock. So let's look at each of these. First, we start with God's glory. This points to the respect, reverence, and honor that is due to him alone. He is exalted above all and is due all praise. This term has to do with God's dignity and the respect, reverence, and honor that is due to him. God is to be exalted over all of his creation and is due all praise. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And in Psalm 113.4, we read, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. All of his creation should give him glory that is due to him. We are to live our lives in a way that always brings glory to our Creator and Savior. 1 Corinthians 10.31 instructs us to do that. Whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And next we see God's majesty. This is connected to His glory and signifies His greatness. God is mightier than anything else. Why should He receive all glory? Because of His greatness. Or we can also use the word preeminence here. Psalm 8, 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. And King David, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, in his prayers to God, said this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Which leads us to our third attribute, God's dominion. The attribute, this attribute is pointing to his om omnipotence. He has all power. There is nothing that can thwart him. In the very essence of being God, he has all power to dominate and possess all things because he created all things. David says in Psalm 145, 11 through 13, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And our last attribute is God's authority. God's dominion and authority can be seen as synonymous with one another here. This brings us to God's ultimate sovereignty. Because he has all power and all authority, he is sovereign over all things. 
Judas pointing to these attributes which really just highlight the folly of the apostates that think they're going to escape God's judgment. And if you're in this room today and you think you're going to escape God's judgment, you will not. And you need to repent today and turn your heart towards Christ. Isaiah 43, 13 tells us, Even from eternity I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And also, if you want to look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar was restored from being like an animal, God restored him, and Nebuchadnezzar gave him praise for the fact that he has all power and all authority. God has all authority, dominion, majesty, and glory, and we can have confidence in his dealing with us and also with dealing with the unrepentant too. This is the great God whom we serve, and this is the only one whom we shall fear and love more than anything in the world. At the end of his letter here in Jude 25, Jude finishes with, Before all time and now and forever. Amen. These attributes were not bestowed upon God, but rather they have always been. There is no beginning or end with God. He is before all time and forever. We have seen in the weeks past the eternal judgment, that eternal judgment was the final destination of the apostates, and now Jude is making it clear that we can have confidence in our Lord because his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority had no beginning and will have no end. We can also have confidence in our salvation because God is the same and never changes. He will keep us in him till the end to enjoy him and glorify him forever. So in closing, let me just cover a few things. First, as we are dealing with others, Let's make sure we identify what type of person we are dealing with. Are we dealing with a person that is weak in their faith or a person who has already been flirting with false teaching? Or are we dealing with a person that is clearly a false teacher and is, or is joined at the hip with false teaching? We do need to show mercy to all, yet continue to keep ourselves pure and undefiled by those who may lead us astray. As I said, I have dealt with many types of of these people and will continue to deal with these type of people and we need discernment so that we ha know the best way to deal with them. Sometimes it may be simply by praying for them to turn from false teaching, but sometimes it means we patiently come alongside the weak and help them to grow. Use discernment when dealing with people and ask the Lord to give you wisdom uh, of what to say and how to navigate these relationships. Second, just as God will execute judgment upon all that do not turn to him, we have confidence in him keeping us in him till the end. As we have looked at his attributes, there should be no question that that which he has determined will come to pass. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, the clock is not my friend. In 1 Corinthians 4, through 1, 4 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord, who will also 
confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What an encouraging passage, isn't it? And lastly, let us think daily about his attributes and give him praise and glory for who he is. Our God is eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, righteous, sovereign, infinite, immutable, just, love, merciful, wrathful, transcendent, holy, and good, just to name some of his attributes. We can have confidence in our Lord working in our lives for our good based on who he is, based on his attributes. Because of this, our lives should be marked with praise for our Lord, even in the midst of the storms. And some of you may be in some rough storms even this morning. In Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made me my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. What a comfort this should be to our soul. Regardless of our circumstances, we are chosen by him. We are loved by him, and we will be kept by him for eternity. And I don't think there's a better fitting way to end this series than by reading our doxology here again in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we were able to learn from Jude. We thank you for this church. We thank you for our leaders. We thank you for each person in this body of Christ. We're all part of your body, and we all have functions that are important in this body. And Lord, um, as we prepare, I pray that you would give Justin the words that we need to hear from him, that we would be attentive hearers and not forget what we learn, even looking at the past sermons that Breck did to remember those things. And Lord, we want to give you all glory and praise for everything. In your name we pray. Amen.